You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. What a show this was. The focus of this episode was human-centered design. We, the data guys, always think that data is black and white. Our guest, Brian O'Neill, helped us understand the importance of human on the other side of making those decisions. He had discussed the difference between outputs versus outcomes versus actions and the importance of value from data with best practices around utility, explainability, and the decision process with human in the loop. There are lots of fantastic takeaways from this meeting, especially if you're a data professional who keeps thinking about empathy, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. Take a listen. There is a lot of learning that data professionals can learn from designers and digital strategists. A few key lessons they can teach us include product mindset, design thinking, experience design, and a few more empathy or human-centered design. My guest today, Brian O'Neill, has experience with all of that. And then he runs a podcast called Experience Data. By the way, Brian, love the experience part of it. And then he's a product designer. And then he's a founder for Designer for Analytics. And then I believe he builds machine learning and analytic products. Apologize if I missed anything, Brian. Welcome to the (laughs) Intelligent Data Podcast. That was quite a mouthful, but yeah, you got most of it. (laughs) I give it an A. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. Brian, by the way, can you introduce yourself and what you do? Sure. Yes. So, uh, well, you covered quite a bit of it there, but yeah, I help companies design innovative machine learning and analytics solutions. And so what does that mean? Effectively, what I try to help companies do is focus on, first of all, actually getting outputs and technology solutions that are actually used because you can't really generate value from data or insights until there's actually a human in the loop that's going to use these systems. So the first hurdle for a lot of places is simply making stuff that gets used. And then connecting that to the actual value piece. So, you know, unlike the way a lot of data projects and technology projects work, where we start with like a set of data and then we're trying to often impose it on a problem, you know, from the design perspective, we work backwards from, you know, what I call the last mile. So I always start with, you know, where does the rubber hit the road? Which people are going to be working with this technology that uses data or a model or whatever it's going to be. And we work backwards from that human interaction standpoint and then figure out what's the right you know, set of technology to use against that. That's basically how the process works. But I'm really kind of dedicated my work to trying to have less waste in, in this industry. There's just a lot of data projects and products that get created just don't get used. And that's kind of the dirty secret is we're making all kinds of outputs and we're not getting a lot of outcomes a lot of the time. And I think design provides recipes that can be used to help with that. Amen. I love it when you said outputs versus outcome. That is a very clear distinction. But before I get into the human-centered design, I was reading your bio. You're a pretty serious percussionist. And I believe you own an orchestra? (laughs) You did your homework. Yes, I do have two professional careers. My formal training as a classical and jazz drummer and percussionist. So I do have two lives. That's why I started my own business and I've been self-employed for a long time so I can work on both sides of my professional career. So yes, 
I do run some uh, group called Mr. Ho's Orchestratica, and I do a lot of Broadway and theater work and some pop stuff. We played with Donna Summer once and just different stuff like that, mostly around the Boston, New England area and some touring as well. So I used to play uh, Mridangam, which is an Indian instrument, a percussion instrument as well, similar to tabla, but I used to do that when I was little. So that's what got me excited when I saw you being a percussionist, but congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah. So let's get into this human-centered design. Your background is a lot of UX design. At some point, I'm assuming you decided to jump into the field of analytics and machine learning. Give us a history lesson of how this happened. Sure. I was basically reflecting, you know, a few few years ago, I don't know, maybe about five years ago on the type of work that I had been doing as a contractor, basically, mostly with startups and some enterprise companies. I live in the Boston area in Cambridge near Harvard and around this area. We have a lot of enterprise. It's kind of the theme of the business climate here, enterprise, life sciences, that kind of thing. And I realized a lot of the work I had been doing from financial services to working with Dell EMC and NetApp and some of these companies on storage systems and all of this, it was largely around analytics, information products, things of this nature, where we're trying to pull signal that's useful to humans out of these databases and turn that into some kind of value for them. And I just felt comfortable working with a lot of highly qualified engineers in this area and people in data science and analytics. And for whatever reason, just kind of found a niche there that I enjoyed. So I started to really focus my consulting work in this space because I started to realize that there was a lot of challenges with this stuff just not getting used, as we talked about earlier. Dashboards, software applications, whatever. People with good intentions trying to leverage the latest technologies and often not having a ton of success there. And the reality is, There's just too much technology first, in my opinion, not enough people first approaches and really understanding down to a T. How does someone do their work? Like, what's it like to be this person? We were talking offline about, you know, gas and oil workers. What's it like to be an oil engineer working on a rig where maybe my hands are dirty, I'm on an iPad, something's broken. What is going on with this system? We're losing money. Whatever that stress is like, what's that like? What kind of information do I need to make a decision quickly? What's the impact of not reacting to that decision properly? And I've worked in similar contexts around, you know, the software that, say, storage and virtualization engineers use in the data center if you're managing on-prem hardware. It's like oxygen, right? We take for granted that all that stuff just works all the time, right? And when it doesn't work, everybody notices it doesn't work. And so... When stuff goes wrong for those types of people, it can be really disastrous from a business standpoint, and it can be very stressful for them. I have a funny story about, you know, one storage administrator when we were looking at like a dashboard for a piece of software that does performance analytics and it goes out and tries to detect slowness problems and why stuff is running slowly. And he had his watch list and he called it his pink slip servers. And his pink slip servers were the ones where I get fired if those go down or if those are out of business or out of service for a long time. And this is the kind of stuff which you'll never see in a requirements document. And if you don't have your technical people going and actually spending time with users, talking to them, observing them in the wild, what it's like to be that person, you're never going to think about what that's like to have something you call a pink slip server and to think that my job is actually dependent on this. So don't shovel 400 pieces, vectors of analytical telemetry at me that I have to go explore to understand why my system's running slow. I just want to know, why is it slow? What did you check? What do I need to do about it right now? And even does this need my attention? Because a hundred other alarm bells might be going off as well. What do I need to pay attention to right now? 
how does someone then do that? How do they currently troubleshoot a problem like that? We want to slide our technology into the way they do it now and either make it better or adopt the technology to the way they do it now, not bring in a brand new thing that forces them to go learn how to do it. And this is kind of my rant on like the data literacy approach, right? Which is about let's change everybody else so that they can be more like what we need so that they can understand how to use our stuff. So basically the challenge is now with the cloud being so simple to use, you're shoving these, as you stated, pink slip servers into an IT team. Nobody complains about it because it's up and running. There is a so much escalation and your job is in the line if it doesn't work. And to your point, these things don't go in a requirement document, right? How important is a server to an organization? There is no requirement that states that. Yes, you can say, you know, service level agreements. But again, those are becoming very application centric. And I think you said this in one of your blogs, technically right, effectively wrong. You can build the best architecture, best breed architecture in the entire world. But if it's not used by a human being yeah, to make a decision, it doesn't matter, right? Absolutely. And that's another big problem, right, is I'm going to totally generalize the world of data scientists right now. But I think because of the training and the way school is taught and the way problems are hand delivered and hand curated, like here's a neatly formed data science problem there. We think about the solution from its technical merit and how accurate the model was and all these parameters that may or may not be relevant to the delivery of value to both the business, but also remember the business is just a collection of human beings. So it has to be valuable in the eye of the user. There is no abstract concept of value. It's all about the person that's using it. And they probably don't care what kind of algorithm it used. They probably don't even care if it's machine learning. That sounds better, right? But they just care about whether I can make the right decision. Can I move forward with this information and that kind of thing? And so often that is not part of the criteria of building a good solution. That is seen as someone else's job operationalization is the word that we hear a lot. I kind of hate this word because that sounds like it's something separate from the act of designing a solution, which by definition, it is not a solution unless it gets used. So the operationalization has to be part of the definition of the project or the product that is designed in from the start. We cannot pull those things apart. And so I think that's more of a design framing instead of like a data science or an analytics framing where we just think about, you know, model accuracy or some of these kinds of things. It's like, no, we have to think about the utility. And here's a great example of that, right? Black box models. If we think model accuracy is the most important thing, then we will choose the right algorithm, right techniques that will give us the highest accuracy. But if you find out at the end of the project that how did you come up with this is the question that every single user has. You're going to have a problem, right? Because the answer is, we don't know how it came up with that. Well, there's no way I'm using your new pricing algorithm and writing that on the quote that I'm going to give to our next customer unless I understand how you came up with it. Because that's twice as much as we charged them last year. And my guy's going to flip out if he sees this. But if you can tell me how you came up with that, then maybe I'll use your price, right? Absolutely. That explainability and interpretability is very important for you to choose it, right? Goes back to the human in the loop argument that you had made earlier. By the way, 100% agree. As you said it, an interesting thought process came to my mind. I was listening to one of the podcasts and somebody talked about this explainability transparency in a very lame man's term, right? So brain is the most powerful machine learning algorithm that has ever been produced. Convolutional neural network times a billion, right? 
Now, you go give brain a simple coffee mug and you ask it what it is. In a matter of millisecond, it'll predict it's a coffee mug. But if you sit down and think about it, why did it say it's a coffee mug? It typically says, I know it because I've been drinking in a similar kind of a construct for the last 25 years. I know it because it says it's a coffee mug. There are some properties that you can think of. Essentially, this is the easiest way to explain why brain thought of what you showed it a coffee mug. You got to be that simple when you're explaining. Most of the time I've seen technology vendors having this explainability concept to an unlimited amount of technicality. It's not that at all. Oh, explainability of the regression model is all the different parameters that we use. No, 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 no. Why would a business even care what parameters you're using if you're a scientist? I have a business problem. You're trying to solve that problem with your model. Tell me how are you solving that problem? Tell me, explain me how whatever this magic that you're using is solving my problem. Do you agree? I do. And I think the way to know what explainability requirements look like are to understand what does the decision process look like? Are we actually modeling out the decisions or what the journey looks like for some, you know, let's take something like, you know, fraud detection or something like that, right? At some point, maybe a fraudulent charge on a credit card gets escalated to a human. Well, what is the process by which that person does something about a charge that looks fraudulent? And if we don't understand how those decisions are made, we won't really know what the explainability might need to be to that person. Because there might be you know, factors that went into the model that aren't really particularly interesting or correlations that just aren't things that that person's ever going to take into account. And then there's other things that might be missing. One tool I worked on that did root cause analysis for those performance issues I was telling you about, one thing we found out it needed to do was it needs to say all the things that it checked that were actually okay. Not just the things that are wrong, like the, what it thinks is wrong with the system, like why is the IO path slow and there's queuing at the disk or whatever the heck it is. When we talked to the users, we found out they need to be reminded what are all the stuff that it did check that was okay so that they don't go spend time checking stuff like, is the cabling okay? <laughs> you know, is the power turned on? Like basic stuff like that needed to be there as well. And again, these are not going to sound like requirements necessarily to, if you're just focused on creating a model, for example, those sound like kind of like someone else's job, right? So we need to stop thinking about the model as this kind of special thing that's actually delivered. Like nobody really deals with the model directly. They go through some piece of software, some experience needs to be created before the value of the model can actually be brought to life. Absolutely. I think you said it right, the decision process. So you mentioned a few strategies here. Let's kind of talk about what you've listed so far and what I've missed. So if I'm building, as you stated, indispensable experience around data, you mentioned the operationalization, that's a mouthful, the human-centered design, the utility, in simple words, of that data product, the explainability, the decision process. So you've mentioned those things thus far. What else can you think of, Brian, that is important for these experiences around data? The understanding the decision-making part is really, and I think we can't gloss over that one too fast. Because if we don't understand really how that human being at the end is going to do something with this information, it's kind of like game over, right? You really have not created any value. You stood up infrastructure, you made your data swamp, you created all the plumbing in place, you made a dashboard, you made a piece of software, and then bam, hits the user and they're like, hmm, not sure what to do with that. Well, your millions, hundreds, thousands, millions, however much you spent, all that stuff flush, toilet flush right down the toilet. 
you have not actually done anything except a bunch of research. You got to practice the technical chops. You got, you got all that stuff in, right? I'm being very polarizing with the language here on purpose to make the point that we cannot leave out that last mile piece of the decision-making. And a lot of that should not be happening at the end. We don't do the design part at the end. We do the design part throughout and we involve these people at the beginning of the process. So research is absolutely required to do this work. And this is a place where there's not a lot of questions being asked when I do like training with internal data science and analytics teams that are primarily serving an internal business stakeholders, right? They're helping operations or finance or marketing or something like that. They're not asking a lot of questions most of the time. They are responding to requests for things. Give us a dashboard with these fields. I need an Excel sheet with these things. Can you make a model that does this? Those are fully loaded with so many tactics and assumptions. And if we don't put our problem finding hats on there and go out and fall in love with the problem, the chances of us routinely putting out data-driven products that are going to get used and produce value is low. And I think the stats and the surveys on this show that, that this industry is not doing much better. I mean, I go out and track these surveys that are run and it's been hanging around an 80% failure rate, whether you call it BI, AI, analytics, on and on and on, the failure rate and enterprise software in general is often has this problem, but there's just a lot of stuff being made that doesn't ever produce value. And this is a change and I understand it. It can create more work, but it actually accelerates the value creation, if you care about quality as defined by someone actually used this and they made a decision with this information, if that's the KPI and it's not, did we ship something every two weeks? Did we show an increment of value? Did we run a sprint on time? Did the code check-in pass all the checks? You know, all these things that are easier to measure, quote, quote, if that's all we're doing, well, that's easy to measure. But that doesn't mean we delivered an outcome to our customer or a client or to our user. We haven't impacted somebody's life yet. And that sounds squishy, but ultimately, unless we're talking even fully automated systems, I'm sure you know, there's still a human. There's guide rails on these automated systems when things goes out of whack or you have COVID hits and all of a sudden the models are off. I'm sure some of these places maybe learned that they didn't have the right stuff in place, but they're not really fully automated. There's still somebody in the loop here. And I think those humans are not being integrated into these projects with the technology and data people enough. We need to get out of the order some fries. I'll have two models and a regression, whatever. And can you make it super size? Oh, do you want it big data size? Yes. You know, no, 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 no. Like you don't just come in here and ask for a machine learning model. And then we go to Home Depot. We build you one and do it. We ask you why. We go out and spend time with you and we involve you dear user, in the process. You're going to be there with us. You're going to prototype with us. You're going to give us feedback on the way. You're going to help us get it wrong fast so we can get it right even faster. I agree with you 100%. I've never seen a quote-unquote fully automated system that I don't know if it ever exists. A fully automated system to me is a system that does a particular task, but at the end of the day, it's human who takes action on whatever that thing is doing. Especially in a failure scenario, there's no self-learning machine, so to speak. There's no artificial general intelligence. I don't foresee it until probably I get old or even pass away, but God knows. You know, you mentioned the monitoring and measuring piece, but something I didn't hear, and maybe I missed it, is what happens at the end, the action on the decision. 
look, these machine learning algorithms, these analytics, they give you something to think about, something to act on. How important is the job of these data product developers or data scientists, whatever role you want to call them, to know the action that needs to be happening on that decision process, as you mentioned? Well, I think it's critical, if only because I think cross-functional teams can do a lot better work. And if the data experts understand what the business user, and most of my work is focused on enterprise. So if they understand what the user is trying to do and they start to understand the human algorithm, like if we use the oil rig, you know, troubleshooting use case, why is the pressure low in this valve or whatever? If they understand something about that, those people are also the ones most well-armed to say, you know what? We track telemetry on this sensor over here. Like, why aren't we using that? Why is this guy doing all these manual checks and turning the screws and the valves and the knob? We, he doesn't need to do that. We're collecting data about that. We probably could, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now we spin out. And this is where the creativity comes when we have different people in the room. And so these cross-functional teams are really important to developing solutions that are not focused just on the technology piece, but we're looking at the problem from these different vectors, from domain expertise, user experience lens, you know, engineers are looking at it from what's technically possible to make in the software. The data scientists probably understand more, obviously, the predictive power here. Do we have the right data sets and the right volume to do this kind of insight, et cetera? And this is changing, by the way. At least I feel like it's this is starting to change. I just read an article about GlaxoSmithKline's just publicly wrote an article about shifting their entire organization over to a product-centered organization instead of project you know, I come from the software industry about what software teams have learned about having these diverse teams, the designers, the engineers, the product managers, the domain experts, the data people, they work collectively on this stuff together. You don't throw your thing over the wall to the next person. They do their part. And at some point, maybe someone six months later takes that model off the shelf and does something with it. And you have no idea that is not how stuff works. And I think this is starting to change within some businesses. And there's direct monetary value for this too. I think it was an MIT Sloan study that was recently published just this year. And it talked about what were the companies using AI doing that had the most outsized returns in the cohort that they studied. So I think they looked at the kind of the top echelon, I forget it was a quartile or whatever. And they saw the top performers basically had figured out that competing on AI meant human and machine working together. That was an essential part of their ability to leverage these technologies well, was that they were looking at both sides of that. And as one, I think this was from a mining leader in Africa, he said, we don't have AI teams. We have problem solving teams. And I think that's awesome because if you call yourself an AI team, well, by golly, you're going to have your AI toolbox with you and you're going to want to hit stuff with your AI hammers on every single problem. And this is even a problem at Google. I mean, I had one of their user experience people on my show to talk about, you know, how they work with data scientists there and they have a tendency to want to ML everything there. And so they have their designers and user experience people running around to try to make sure that those teams are really focusing on the problem at hand, not trying to necessarily ML everything because not every problem needs to be solved with that. And we need to kind of get out of this headspace that I'm the designer, I do this. Well, I'm the data scientist, so I do the ML part. It's like, no, we collectively own this problem together and we need to find the right solution, which probably will use some type of data thing since we're in the ballpark for that. But we need to be aware of that and approach it that way. Part of the problem to what you said is because of the hype in AI, 
you know, it's been this way the last, I don't know, five to 10 years or so, but now more than ever, all technology vendors are advertising AI that will solve anybody's problem within their products, right? So that's becoming part of the problem too, that now since software vendors are actually putting AI into their products itself, software products, that is, people think that you just point and shoot data at it and it'll solve your problem. Again, hammer to all your problems, right? Which is not true at all. Now, you use this word data products quite a bit. I want to get your thoughts on what is a data product? What are the types of data products or categories of data product? How do you summarize them? That's a great question. I actually posted on LinkedIn trying to get the hive mind to come up with a shared definition because I haven't seen a great one yet. I'm typically referring to any type of software or initiative where we're trying to make better decisions. That's kind of at the root of this. However, this can also mean, you know, taking a product that you're using data to improve an experience where the customer isn't necessarily trying to interface with data, but somehow the experience is improved with data. So you could take something like a robot, like a vacuum, you know, like your iRobot, your vacuum cleaner, something like this, where it starts to learn the layout of your home. It's running less often and it's running at the right. It knows when to run like at nighttime and it's out of the way. So it can also be products like that. I tend to work more on the ones where we have humans in the loop actually interfacing with data in some way. So either through a software application or, you know, dashboarding or reporting, something like that. But I'm literally working on this very definition because I think we need to have it. It's kind of like big data. No one ever really decided what that meant. It's kind of a fluffy marketing term. So I'm with you. We need a better definition of that. So what are the types of data products? Ignore the definition, but what are the types of data products or what do organizations call as data products? Is it API? Is it machine learning models? Is it analytics? Is it all of the above? Is it data extracts? What is it? What are the types you've seen? Well, sure. I mean, I think I see those more as, you know, enabling technologies, you know, what kind of analytics it uses or whatever. The product is there to deliver some type of problem solving, some pain reduction, some decision support, this type of thing. So to me, the word product here, especially as it relates to the data science and analytics world, part of the reason I use this word and I'm very big on trying to drive product thinking and design thinking into the way analytics and data science people do their work is because if we think about it as a product, especially if you're doing internal work for internal stakeholders, you're serving your own business, for example, how good would it have to be if you had to actually sell it? If someone had to was paying to use this and your salary and your work was literally dependent on that HR department that you serve, your colleagues, they're funding your work. How good would it have to be? And I think this is part of the product approach here is that we treat this thing as something that is people are dependent on. It's not a project. It's not something that just disappears, especially if we're doing real strategic work, right? If we're trying to shift a business to use AI in some interesting way, thinking of that as a project to me sounds like very temporary, does not sound like a long-term approach. So there's a mindset that goes to this that needs to change in order to create a product that you could monetize or have the idea that what if it had to be that good that you could monetize it changes how we go about making it because we can't simply give people what they asked for anymore. We actually have to go out and do the research to do the problem discovery. We need to learn how to prototype and iterate quickly there so that we're not waiting 6, 12 months to show somebody something and then finding out that it's not even a problem anymore because we haven't checked in with them in three to five months. They haven't heard from us. And all of a sudden, there's a different fire. 
It's like, that's nice, but we're over here now. What? Like, <laughs> so I think that product approach is a good headspace to get into, but it's a change that a lot of places, it's going to be slow for some teams to make that adjustment. And listeners, if you want to check out a lot more frameworks around the data products, you should check out Brian's podcast. It's called The Experience Data. Again, Brian, lots of meaningful and good information for me. I've been following you for quite a bit. So thank you. I appreciate the the frameworks and best practices that you outline out there. Now, how do you explain? I mean, there's a lot of human-centered design, to best put it, that you're articulating in your thoughts, right? Then you have a sponsor for your projects and for your engagements who is the IT person, right? And you have to explain to that person that, yes, I can do all of this cool stuff, this black box machine learning magic, but then it has to be revolving around the business. It has to be revolving around, more importantly, the humans, right? How do they take the decisions? Have you had any roadblocks explaining this to IT people? So actually, my engagements are a little bit different. So I kind of serve two audiences. I serve software product companies as kind of channel A. This is product managers, founders of startups, enterprise software companies, where they're using machine learning and analytics in commercial software. And most of the time, the challenge there is hard to use, low adoption, sales are not going well, some competitor has a better experience. These are the kinds of problems. So when I'm doing an audit, a lot of times that's where we start because they have a feeling something's wrong, but they don't know how to articulate exactly what's wrong. Usually it comes across as like surface or it looks like engineers built it. That's, that's like the classic one. And the boss says, we want it to be iPhone-like. Okay, <laughs> they're detecting a pain, but they can't put their finger on it. So that's kind of channel A. What we've been talking about is more channel B, which is more of these internal data science and analytics teams. A lot of them do report into IT, but it's going to be a, a director or VP or someone in analytics and data science who has a team and they're having this problem of low engagement. The classic one is new manager or new director comes into a team. They have 12,000 dashboards apparently all over the business. Nobody knows how anything is being used. Nobody knows where any value is being created. They literally don't know, even know what's being used. There's software all over the place. One of these guys I talked to recently, he said, when I came in, I literally just turned it all off and I wait for the phone to ring to find out what stuff's actually being used. Like we're making stuff, but there's an opportunity cost and we create noise and we create other problems besides just the wasted time and talent of our people, right? So typically when I'm helping them, it's more in a training context and they're trying to level up their people and start to really figure out how do we deliver outcomes instead of just outputs how do we do this? And here's the great news for all your listeners. If you're touching any of the stuff that's going to be used by a human being, you're already a designer. Full stop. Because you can't not make design choices. Every choice, including just the default, we're using R with, you know, shiny apps and that's what it did. Okay, well, that's a choice. So you can't not make choices. As my friend, you know, Jared Spool was telling me on my podcast, When that spinner comes up on Netflix and your movie's queuing up, the guy in the basement running the data center, the network engineer, there's your user experience designer. The people running the network and keeping the data flowing and all the bits and bytes for our movies and things that we watch, they are having an effect on the experience. So design is really everybody's job. Designers like me, I see us as accelerants and we help teams move this process along. We facilitate the group coming up with something. 
It's not the send it over the wall and they put their black turtlenecks on and they do this art stuff and then they come back with this amazing thing. That's not how it works. The team does it together. And so design is a way of thinking about the problem from a human perspective. And this is something that can be taught. It's mostly, are you ready to do it? Are you ready to make the time to do it? Are you ready to slow down in the short term to deliver way more value in the medium to longer term there? It's a strategic choice to do things this way. Absolutely. I would have to agree with you there. And, you know, I believe that you offer a course literally uh, called what designing human centered data products. I've taken the first one, first module of that course. I got to tell you, man, it's very, very clear. I think about design all the time because I directly deal with non-technical people. So we got to start thinking about their experience. And I don't mean it in a design way. I mean it like literally in a human experience way. How do they interact with data, period? It doesn't matter what technology they use, what capability they use. How do they interact with it? What kind of decisions do they take? What kind of outcome do they expect? How do we not get into this whole mode of bias? How do we put security on top of that so we get the right data to the right people at the right time with the right quality and the right structure, right? So really appreciate that. Now, this begs me to ask this question, Brian. On one side, there's a school of thought going on with data scientists must have data engineering skills and data management skills. On the other side, there's a school of thought going on where data scientists who are building these data products have to have that experience design, understand the decision-making process, understand the overall workflow. What's the best value of them? What should they focus on? So these are management choices and we can't have everybody doing full-time everything. And I totally get that. So the way I see it is if you're not ready to digest, like, you know what, we need to go hire some product managers who have the product thinking and we need to bring on a bunch of UX people. That's a much bigger investment than helping the team start to make small changes now. So when I run my private seminar training, it's really about how do we get people to start taking the first step? You know, I have eight modules that I break this down into, but the point here is what can I get a data team to start doing now? Instead of opening up your Python or R, whatever your toolkit is, how about a whiteboard and a marker with some people in the room together to talk about how will this look at the end? What will the experience be like? How does the user do their work today? Prototyping, low fidelity, nothing digital, the focus on getting to learning increments, right? It's about figuring out what's going to work and what's not going to work as fast as possible so we don't spend a lot of time making the wrong stuff. Usability testing is another example of something that can be done. It doesn't take a ton of time to do or a ton of skill. You can learn how to facilitate a test. And by doing a test, you get data back about is someone able to use this? Is it usable? Is it useful? And in order to answer those questions, you have to define, well, what is the criteria? What are the tasks we're going to give someone in a usability test? In order to do that, then you have to actually go back to the beginning of the project and say, well, what was the promise? What did we promise to deliver here such that we can now go objectively actually test this with users? So these are all different types of learning. They don't take, you know, tons and tons of time to do. It's mostly about deciding that it matters and swallowing the pill that the way we're doing it right now isn't working great, or at least it's not consistently delivering value. We're making a lot of stuff that doesn't get used, and it doesn't produce value. As you're actually explaining it, what comes to my mind is, you know, you take a digital strategist and you ask them to go build a user-centered kind of design, user interface, for example. The way they start is whiteboard, handful of sticky notes, and just 
stick the crap out of that whiteboard, if you will, and make sure that we understand the overall experience design and the workflow and how a journey kind of falls. Now, what you're saying is take that same practice, apply it if you're a data scientist, if you're an analyst or what have you on the data side, because that practice is valuable for you to understand how a human experience would look like. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Those are different tactical steps in the process. And some projects you need more salt, other ingredients, you need a little bit more butter. It depends on the kind of work that you're doing. But yes, that, that's effectively correct. And I would say at the root of this is empathy. And this sounds very squishy to data people sometimes, right? But first, we have to decide we actually care. If you just want to kind of work in isolation and you don't care, maybe you're in the wrong place. But let's assume most people, especially data and technology people, you want to make stuff that gets used that makes a difference. Well, I can tell you it's a lot more enjoyable when you actually understand what the parameters of success look like to the end user. And so having direct contact, one-on-one interviews, shadowing somebody for a day to see what's it like to be a traveling sales guy with this iPhone phone app and it's telling him which door to knock on to sell his widgets or whatever. What's that like? And understanding when do they use data now? Where are they doing work that is silly? Why are you running these crazy reports in the CRM? We could just automate that and send it to you every morning. That's crazy. But you'll never know that because for them, that's just the status quo. It's how we've always done things around here. So this research piece and this exposure of the creators to the users is fundamental. And this is sometimes called exposure time. And you need to have regular exposure time between the creators and the users. And the less of that you have, the more chance you're going to make stuff that's hard to use, that doesn't get used. It's just like, huh, what do we do with this? And the next thing you know, the marketing department does an end run around IT, goes and hires a firm to get it done the right way. Absolutely. Have you heard about the OODA loop? Ooda. No, that one I don't know. So it, you should uh, Google this at some point. O-O-D-A. I believe it stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. And uh, this is a framework that military actually uses. If they have to have some kind of a strategy around something very sensitive, they use what they call the Ooda loop. And many of my friends as digital strategists They actually think about the OODA loop when they're understanding what the end user actually wants, which is you make the business person speak. Don't talk. Don't ask any questions. Let them just tell you what the day in the life looks like. So you're observing them, right? And then you're kind of situating yourself in that process thinking, I'm going to build something that will support them, that will complement them. What does that look like? So you're orienting that, right? But at the same time, you're articulating it back to them so that they know what your design thinking looks like. You're empathizing that and you're building it. Obviously, as a user, they have to decide which way to go, right? Is it this or that? How do we roadmap this in a way that it makes sense to them? And last but not the least is the acting part. There's a lot of good information about the OODA loop. Everything you're saying kind of ties me back to that. I've been researching this quite a bit to say, we keep talking about this human-centered design thinking, but what is a good framework for me to think about and how can I get a lot of documentation about this? And OODA Loop came to my rescue. Sure. And I think there's some great stuff in that. And I'm just going to say this right now. There's a lot of different frameworks for this and there's a lot of overlap between them. Feel free to take one and start doing the work. And stop worrying about whether it's the right one, because there is no one right one. There's just different systems and ways of kind of packaging this up. 
but a lot of them are going to have this idea of there's a learning phase, there's a problem definition phase that comes from the learning, there's some type of action, whether it's prototyping or creating something, and then getting that in front of the person it's for to see if are we on the right track, how fast can we rapidly iterate through those cycles so that we don't make the wrong thing. Most of them are kind of framed around that, and that's basically what we're trying to do. I will say, I think the making part is where most teams spend most of the time. And a lot of them do not frame the problems properly. They don't always really know what's wrong. So when I ask, well, what are you guys trying to do? Like, what's the problem? We're trying to make a machine learning model to predict sales for the next quarter. That's not a problem. That is a solution. What is the problem? And they're so wrapped up into the making part that the chances of that thing being correct is wrong because what's going to happen is, okay, here's the prediction and you know the question that's right around the corner for the CXO. Why is it like that? What are we supposed to do? Where should we spend more marketing? Why is this one that way? Well, you didn't tell us you needed that. Well, nobody asked me if I needed that, but of course I need that. How am I supposed to do anything with this without the forecast alone isn't enough? Well, you didn't tell us that was a requirement. We need to think beyond the prediction the dashboard and all this. And this is why data visualization is too low of an altitude to be thinking about design because that's about screens and maybe a screen and a dashboard. People experience things over time and rarely do we just hit a dashboard, close the book, and now I go eat lunch. That's not how it works. There's a workflow. There's something somebody might do with the information they saw on the dashboard. What's next? What's the next click? What's the next task? We need to figure out that entire workflow. And even if we're not going to solve the whole thing, we need to put up, this is why product thinking is good. Where's the boundaries for this phase of the work, this project? Where's the boundaries for which problem we're going to solve? Because we know the entire journey looks like this, but this project is about that. If we don't even have that discussion, how do we know how far to go? And like, where does this thing end? And it's just like, because that's life, right? There's always a next thing on the to-do list. There's always a next step, a next click, a next research, another piece of data to go look, more filtering, more drilling down. So there's different framings for this, but I wouldn't get too hung up on which one is the right one. I would say, if it feels like one you can start doing to even just ingest some of this stuff, then I would say, go for it. Design thinking provides a lot of these things. And the reason I don't use that language too much is that I want design doing and not just thinking about it. Because a lot of places, especially analytical people, tend to think about doing it right and not about I'm doing it to learn it. And that's really how you learn how to design is by doing it. You don't think about it. You go out and do it. So let's call it design for what it is. It's just design. Design thinking has made it easier to digest as like, oh, that's something that anybody can use for any problem. You are very passionate about this. I can clearly hear you, Brian. I'm assuming that's part of the reason why you're getting selected for all these advisory panels. So let's quickly jump into that. I know you're a strategic advisor for what Sandbox Innovation Fund Program in MIT. What's that? What's a Sandbox Innovation? It's a cool name. Yeah, this is a program MIT has for students. It's basically like a, an incubator where students are actually allowed to get a little bit of funding from the school to work on startup initiatives and projects that they have, as well as access to a group of advisors and experts, whether it's you know legal risk, data science, I kind of represent the product and design piece. You know, I think there's like very deep domain experts in different areas, depending on what the students are working on. So every month I have a couple hours of my time that I give to the students who are 
some of them are just great ideas. Like they're just, they're so smart and they're really tackling really interesting things. I literally just had a session this week and I really enjoyed doing that. My upstairs neighbor actually works for the fund and he connected me up with them. And that's been a lot of fun. It's so glad to hear because the students are going to be the next, you know, workers, right? So we need to make sure we coach them right so that they come out in kind of this next gen ecosystem. I don't want to say architecture. You're also the advisory for International Institute for Analytics. Is that correct? We do some webinars and things together uh, with them. They've, they've been good to me. I've spoken at their symposium and they put out some really great thought leadership in the space here. So we share a lot of opinions, especially around the product thinking approach and this type of thing. So I'm looking forward for a lot of these um, aspects of your showing up in some of these advisory programs. You're a part of it, Brian. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Almost time to wrap up. Are you ready for a lightning round? Oh, gosh. You're going to put me on this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll take it easy. I'll take it easy. I've only got a few questions for you. All right. So this is ad hoc. What are a couple of your favorite books and our podcast? Now, you can't say your podcast. I've got one for you that I'm reading. It's, uh, are you familiar with uh, Farnham Street? Uh-uh. So there's a book called The Great Mental Models. There's a great blog. It's fs.blog is the site. He has a fantastic podcast. And so I'm reading his book. His whole theme is really about how people make decisions. So they look at different framings for uh, decision-making and this kind of thing. So I find some tangents to the work that we do in data there. So I'm really enjoying that text right now. So that's my current reading. Fascinating. We'll make sure that any books that you recommend, we'll put it on our show notes. Now, another question. Did you do anything special? I'm, I'm assuming everything you are doing is special. So anything personal, anything special during this COVID lockdown period? You're already a drummer, so that doesn't count. Yeah, I started training. I focus more on cooking. I do have a new uh, son, so I've been learning fingerstyle arrangements of lullabies on guitar for him. And I did some early work with the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition where we were helping out with some dashboarding for reporting on the analytics and metrics around COVID. So I've been doing a little bit of work in that space as well. Less so now because we mostly have the telemetry in place and vaccine, luckily, and all that good stuff. So That is fantastic. What's the next big thing for you? Well, I've got a book on the horizon. I'm still figuring out what the right book is, though, what the right message is and what I want to say. So that's something I've been chewing on as well. And I launched a training seminar about a year and a half, two years ago. I consider it a living thing that I'm still iterating and changing, making it longer. I found out people need more time to put these things into place. So I use the same framework. I put stuff out. I try it, get feedback, iterate. <laughs> so that's something I've been working on as well is, is my training. That is fantastic. Well, hopefully your book comes out very soon. If it does before the podcast goes out, we'll make sure to put it in the show notes as well. What advice do you give to our listeners, especially about the design and the experience mindset into their daily data lives? If leaders decide that outcomes are the thing they're going to measure and not the outputs, that is going to change a lot of what matters and how we prioritize work and where we put money and time and this kind of thing. It's a very different approach because you can't have outcomes. If you don't know what they are, it's very hard to have them. You don't want to find that out at the end, obviously. So I think that's the most important framing there. And if you want to get to that, you have to understand problems. And if you want to understand the problem really well, design provides a lot of recipes and ways to do that. So that's the antidote when you're ready to jump in. That is fantastic. Brian, I'm just truly amazed as to how interactive, how human this conversation was. 
I wish you very best and hopefully talk to you a lot more about how to influence data and analytic practitioners and teach them a little bit of your thinking. Brian, thank you for being on my show. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. And if your listeners are interested, you can head over to designingforanalytics.com. I've got an insights mailing list and the podcast is there and a bunch of resources and stuff. So feel free to stop by, shoot me a message. We will make sure we put it in our show notes. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvind Morali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon.